Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Bun Me Chronicles podcast. This is your host, Randy Kim. This podcast is about breaking bread, or I should say, breaking bun me, with folks in the Chicago API community and beyond. For this week's episode, I was breaking bun me with Lorraine Targos, a Chicagoan, proud activist and advocate. She's a member of the Chicago Democratic Socialists of America. She serves as a board chair of the Metropolitan Tenants Organization. She's been in local theater, including as part of an improv POC-led team called Preach, and married to recently elected Chicago alderman of the 25th Ward, Byron Cicho Lopez. I had an incredible, engaging conversation with Lorraine as we spoke on topics about her mixed Asian identity, her involvement in grassroots-led movements in Chicago, her advice that she shares for young community organizers, her reflections on the 2020 election, and her partnership with Alderman Byron Sixto Lopez. She pulls no punches in this interview. She speaks with incredible passion and knowledge of her work. Please check out this interview, and don't forget to look for my Facebook and Instagram page for more information about Lorraine. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is uh, Randy uh, from the Bun Me Chronicles podcast, and I'm here with Lorene Targo. So how are you today, Lorene? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. So thank you so much for being on the show today. And there's going to be a lot of uh, topics I wanted to cover. But before I begin, I want to ask you if you can introduce yourself. Yeah, uh, my name is Lorene Targos. Um, I do a lot of stuff. I, uh, <laughs> uh, we know each other from, uh, when I was an active member in Sir Friday Night, which is a, a Asian comedy group slash theater company that was founded here in Chicago in 1995. And, um, since then I've become a little bit more involved in politics. Um, I helped run my husband's campaign for Alderman, um, Alderman Byron Sicho Lopez. Um, he won in, uh, April of 2019. And I'm also really active in my uh, labor union, AFGE 704. Oh, and I'm an active member of the Chicago Democratic Socialists of America. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, sharing. I remember, yes, uh, two and a half years ago, I was opening up for Preach, which was um, the, which is the AP, which is the, um, it's a POC uh, improv group in Chicago. And, I want to say that opening yeah. up was a great experience and I got to experience uh, many wonderful uh, comedians and, and also your group, which was hilarious. And I remembered how, um, how important what you shared. I believe it was like the year of 2017. So I remembered you in particular because you spoke about politics in your act and i remember the first thing you asked of the audience is um, do you have the number to your senator and you made everyone get out their phone to yeah. uh, make sure that they can dial it so i was very curious to know what led you into preach and also what led you into activism but let's start with um preach what is it about that what is it about preach that drew you in and what do you see uh preach um, being important for in this theater space? Um, yeah, I uh, joined Preach uh, through uh, one of its early co-founders, TJ Medell, um, and he and I knew each other from Sir Friday Night, and he brought me in. I, um, I'm not really a spoken word artist, but I did a lot of improv, and because I go on these political rants, he thought I'd be a good fit, and it has been a good fit. Um, and then how I got involved in activism, I mean, that's like, uh, you know, I think I started working, um, in, uh, a nonprofit in Chicago in 2007. And, um, that really helped, uh, radicalize me because I saw so much of, uh, capitalism's naked injustices, um, mm -hmm. laid bare at the doorsteps of people that capitalism dehumanizes and, um, you know, over time, it's just become more and more naked. Um, as you know, now we are in a 
under a fascist presidency that gets mm -hmm. uh, seeks to put more authoritarianism into the lives of uh, residents of this continent. And um, you know, we gotta, the stakes have never been higher. Yeah, <laughs> it's- In our lifetime, at least. Yeah, it is also very concerning too. And also the work that you do in activism also amplifies the urgency when you growing up was activism um, was activism an area that was encouraged in your family or do uh, high school to the university uh, what did you see like well, going back in that time uh, what was like one of the first movements that you remembered that really resonated with you um, growing <clears throat> up I didn't really think too much about activism or that type of thing there were like you know books that inspired me I think I read a book about or a story about Lois Gibbs who was uh, uh, her organizing and activism helped uh, lead to the founding of the EPA Superfund program um, but it wasn't something I thought really much about until um, in 20, 2002 my father passed away um, and then um, I started thinking about you know um, it just made me take more responsibility for my own life. And then I started to think more critically about the world I was in and what my influence on it would be. And, you know, it's been just a journey learning more and more every day. Um, definitely taking the values I already had and then plugging in them into what my understanding of reality was and learning more and more every year that reality has reflects so little of our values and trying to change the world to bring the world more in line with the values that I always had. I remembered uh, when I was watching Preach, there was one funny moment that everyone was judge up the cast. And you mentioned, my father doesn't believe in affirmative action. And I remember the collective gasp of your improv group. And I was wondering, thinking back in that time before um, your father passed away, did you grow up in a conservative uh, family and was this, were you raised with the kind of values that uh, obviously um, values that are, that would be very different now than you were back uh, growing up? Yeah, I guess you could, um, you know, conservative is such a relative term. I would, um, you know, my father was uh, a white American um, and my mom's an immigrant from Taiwan. Um, and so there's definitely flavors of, you know, white supremacy that were, and I grew up in the suburbs um, mm. in a place that, you know, was, had a pretty significant Asian population when I was growing up. Um, I think the numbers in high school were around 30%, um, Asian meaning East and South Asian and Southeast. Mm. We're and, in the suburbs. Uh, we're in uh, the suburbs. Area, oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. So there's a big immigrant population there. Um, but there still is, you know, um, the American story is all about white supremacy and anti-blackness and you certainly couldn't escape that almost anywhere. Mm. Um, especially in communities mm. where, there weren't very many uh, black families. Um, and so having to unlearn that stuff and see how all of society is sort of like in on this, um, in on this effort to like continue to dehumanize uh, the black community and then everything being on a continuum of whiteness or blackness and, you know, people like Asians being like sort of flavors of that and then there's like this aspirin like we just passed Columbus Day and mm. I think about how you know the Italian American community is so about Columbus Day because it was I think it was invented in the early 1900s um, to sort of initiate the Italian community into whiteness because whiteness right. has nothing to do with your skin color it, it is it is about your your greater community's choice to collectively participate in anti-blackness and that is what makes you white and so the italian-american community you know struggled with um being ostracized as the other until you know using columbus day they sort of initiated themselves into the white class and um mm -hmm. you know now mm -hmm. as we struggle with that in 2019 
how like you know most italian americans know especially progressive ones understand that you know columbus is no symbol there are plenty of great symbols of great italian americans yes absolutely and columbus didn't even never come here and right he has, you know he has he taken, got lost he takes and... history's breath away with his cruelty you know? Yes, absolutely. He got lost and was the murderous failure that he is. Mm-hmm. And w- you bring up, you know, your upbringing, and I it just reminded me of um, my own upbringing too, uh, and also the Asian American minority myth, and also how it also involves anti-blackness. There's this level of we have to achieve like certain levels of white supremacy and. Uh, into like fit in into to assimilate and this is what we're going to do we're going to work real hard um we're not going to be poor we're going to make sure that we are like accepted minorities i was wondering if that was something that uh, you've had to experience um as well because i think of a lot of uh, anti-blackness within our own asian american communities a great deal uh, I know, like, even starting with my own family members, I have family members in Florida that voted for Trump. And it made me realize the level of, the level of toxicity. It's, it's so, it, it, it still boggles my mind, but at the same time, I look at my relatives who escaped and lived in refugee camps in Thailand, and they were in poor conditions. And growing up, living in the u.s they had to deal with racism uh to some extent but yet they felt it was easy for them to crap on other minorities saying that well we came into the u.s the right way right so i look back on those experiences and the beliefs that my some of my family members have and i'm like thinking to myself but you're brown you know that you will never be accepted into fully accepted into that society, into this society, especially a society that was created on the backs of slavery and the genocide of indigenous folks. So, yeah, I was wondering if this is something that you've also given a lot of uh, deeper thought to uh, within our own community, especially as minorities. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, you know, your identity has the ability to help radicalize you because it shows you that you know if you have some mind you have some identity that is quote unquote other you can sort of see how society treats people that are othered in a way that you know you, I think Lance Bass from Sync always would say he's from like this handsome white boy from Mississippi and yeah. he would always say he was so grateful that he was gay because if he had never if he hadn't been born gay, he would have never understood what it was like to be marginalized for any people who are marginalized, because otherwise he would have lived a straight white man life in a world that was 100% created for him to flourish. And it would be such a, you know, huge step to think about, oh, well, I'm treated this way. And so instead, he had an experience where he's like, oh, I'm treated this way, because I'm gay, even though I can't control it, you know, and then he can make that leap to like, oh, I wonder what life is like for women. I wonder what life is like for, um, you know, people struggling or people with uh, living with disabilities or people, you know, all sorts of ways that people are othered. And so identity certainly gives people an opportunity to be better um, and see through the systemic oppression that we face. Um, But it's uh, certainly not a cure. You know, there's plenty of women who believe that if they are good wives like white supremacy white male supremacy tells them to be like i i love being a mom i love making sandwiches for my husband that's like my duty on earth and there are plenty of women who will go to the grave thinking life was great and dandy um just because they never i don't know whatever for whatever reason um chose to they they were happy with their lives as it was so Mm -hmm. you know we can't count on identity to itself liberate um but i think identity you know, combined with, you know, a class education and like, you know, an education that is driven by like, you know, academic freedom and creativity and critical thinking and centered around our values um, can be liberating for all people. Um, 
and then we don't really have to count on identity as much, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I remembered in our conversation uh, the other day, uh, you there was a quote where you said, there's a hunger to address political concerns in theater space. And I was wondering if you can um, address that because we're seeing where theater spaces to, you know, or any arts and entertainment now bringing up these political concerns that we're dealing with. And I was wondering, uh, what was your experience like in uh, bringing that, po bringing political uh, issues into the theater space from your own experiences? Um, I think it's remarkably liberating for uh, myself and the, my fellow performers and also for people in the audience to be able to, you know, experience what democracy should be is you know sharing ideas through art and really thinking about like you know challenging ourselves to be better i mean we've been as a country really limited in our imagination i mean we're we have presidential candidates in 2019 saying you know we don't have to go bankrupt for medical bills and kids don't have to die from rationing insulin and there are candidates running for president who may be elected who are saying that's too much to ask for yes and you know, the, that this is accepted in uh, the American public as like, as this is not an absolutely disqualifying thing is like astounding. Like, you know, and what even Ocasio, when she, she endorsed uh, Bernie last weekend, she was saying before Bernie came around, she never really saw herself as worthy of, you know, housing as a human right, education as a human right. Like, we are taught that we are here to suffer. I mean, there's this Judeo-Christian flavors to it. You can't, obviously you can't separate it out. You know, we are taught to be is to suffer and we're creating a world where it's like, oh no, maybe we can be joyful on earth. Maybe heaven on earth for billionaires could be heaven on earth for all of mm. us if we just shared all the resources um, in a way that was fair and equitable and according to our values. And so, you know, we only have one life, so we got to get moving. And, you know, theater is a great place to, you know, um, put ideas out there um, and test them out. Yeah, I I know, like, going into 2020, we're in a very critical, yet another critical year where uh, the political landscape is pretty much at the mercy. A lot of communities are... Uh, at risk right now, uh, whether it's the LGBTQ community, uh, refugees, uh, people of color, black and brown communities specifically that are constantly under attack. And I was wondering, I know back in 2016, there's been a lot of questions about how do we engage people, specifically with our family members who hold uh, very... Um, very harmful views politically and i was wondering for a person that you that like you have a lot of very strong radical uh, uh viewpoints that are that are progressive and that are um that you feel very strongly about but how do you engage with folks who have these differing opinions and who may not be ready to accept those ideas how in what ways do you engage in a thoughtful process because i know that this is something that you've done quite a bit on uh, the last several years since I've known you, you find ways to not argue, but to offer these viewpoints. Uh, I, I was wondering uh, what that experience has been like. How do you approach someone who is at the dinner table on Thanksgiving and says, well, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden or I think I'm going to stick to Trump because he's the economy's doing good enough for me that I don't feel affected. Well, it's, you know, you gotta, it's, it's, you gotta get down to like what you have in common at first and see if you share the same values. Um, there's no point in going into conversation with someone if they are absolutely supportive of a white supremacist vision for this country. <clears throat> if they honestly believe that white people have all the money and black people are impoverished and in divested communities because of some sort of fatal flaw in black culture or black identity or the black person as an as a being then that person you there's no point in engaging with that person and because those people are very few um, the majority of Americans and people of the world believe that all people should be treated with dignity and respect and um, 
you know, that's what, you know, that's what kind of America's goodwill has kind of coasted on um, around the world for people who do support the United States is that our ideals are what um, are the shining light, right? Mm -hmm. Not so much our actions. Um, and so we have to, so when you're engaging with someone trying to find common ground, okay, you like, okay, so we get to it and you say, okay, you oppose white supremacy. Okay. Then let's talk about the ways in which, you know, we perpetuate white supremacy and what steps are you willing to take to make sure your actions and your behavior and your lived life reflects the values, or do you really not believe in those values so much? So sort of challenging somebody to really live a life that's reflective of their true values. And that can be hard for some people. So, you know, um, there's definitely like, it takes time for people to come around and mm-hmm. it's, we got to work faster. Like we should, you know, if I was the dictator of America, I'd be like mandating forced, like, like conversations about like, what does white privilege mean? And what does white supremacy mean? And what is, what is feminism? What is toxic masculinity? Um, and like, putting out funding to make sure that every com- every community is having uh, 10 conversations a year with full-on pizza parties and sodas to try to get as much participation as possible. And I think we'd have a better country with just that. Yeah, you, know? hey, you get people with pizza, you know, those are... <laughs> Those are ways to get um, people on board, I, I suppose. But no, I, I think that you bring up a very important conversation. Like, how do we engage the dialogue? How do we get people civically engaged, especially um, with folks who have been marginalized, who've been left out of the table? So with that said, when you're approaching communities, especially in marginalized, um, marginalized folks, with marginalized folks, how do you approach someone who has been who has not felt any res- any good results, even when they've elected, say, Democrats who are supposed to be serving their best interests. Because I, because I think what we've learned from the 2016 election, there were many people that in our own communities that felt left behind by Obama and didn't feel the effects of his administration, the positive effects of his administration to the point where they felt motivated to vote. I mean, Obama was a bad president. He chose Rahm Emanuel as his chief of staff. He didn't even try to do a public option. He closed down his organizing arm, the people who like got him into office. He closed mm-hmm. that down. And that's what mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders was saying. He's not going to like he had yeah. Bernie Sanders has this grassroots movement that's propelling him to the candidacy. And he's not going to shut that down after he's elected. That's going to continue to challenge him, continue to keep him accountable and continue to pressure and move the country towards something better. Um, And so, of course, people didn't feel the good effects of Obama. And that's the delusion of living in a two party system where, you know, people who say complain about people who don't vote. I like I have nothing to say to people who choose not to vote. They have they're choosing to not consent to the system. They're saying, I refuse to give you a 99, like, you know, if you had an election where it was 99% turnout, mm-hmm. then that's a very meaningful, I think in um, 2000, I think in 19, whatever, 82 or whenever uh, Harold Washington was elected. Um, 83, I believe, yeah. Something. Um, he, the, the turnout in the black community was something like 90% or something mm-hmm. like that in Chicago. So that is like, that when people turn out like that, that means they consent to this leader, you know, even if they didn't vote against them, they consent to the process in which they were chosen, you know? Right. And, and like in the most recent election of between Preckwinkle and Lightfoot, I think it was what, 33% turnout. Right. So like right. most people are saying both of these choices are terrible and I don't consent to a option where I can't vote for someone better and choose somebody better. Um, and so, you know, we gotta, we gotta do better with, um, making people feel, giving people a real democratic option. And so let's see how Bernie Sanders works out. And then, you know, electoral change is like such a fraction of the change that's possible. You can Mm -hmm. democratize your family. You can democratize your workspace. You know, um, you can talk to your colleagues at work about something that's been really bad and, you know, see what you guys can do to change that. You know, Amazon workers um, have been trying, have had been having like little mini strikes. I think the Amazon mm-hmm. tech workers staged a walkout to like block the government 
from having contracts with them. Um, you know, of mm. course, you don't win every fight, but if you look over right. the course of history, these little things make a difference. And so, so what people we need, you know, strong civic um, humanities-based education where people understand how history works and can see right now when we're in a moment. Like people just go, "Oh, it's crazy times," but like forty years from now, this is going to be one of the most interesting eras to study. You know? Absolutely. And also, uh, the past couple of years, we've seen a number of protests, uh, different movements that have been emerging, uh, whether it's on uh, gun control, whether it's on health care, whether it's on women's rights, LGBTQ+, and deportations, and the child concentration camps, family separations, um, decriminalized marijuana use, uh, and the incarceral system or prison abolition. So there's been all these movements that have been merging to counter what's been going on with the Trump administration. But on that, the the losses can feel very heavy. The, the losses in those movements can feel very heavy, especially when there's been executive orders have been issued, when you've seen more people getting deported despite the protests. How, um, how, from your own experience, and also, I don't know if you could speak for others, uh, you may not be able to speak for others on this, but how does one work through the losses and the devastating impact of these decisions, even when you've been protesting, it feels like you're being ignored still, like it's still happening. How do you respond to something like that, especially from folks that feel like they're about to give up and or they feel so disenchanted they they just could not go on much longer? Well, if people are feeling like at a crisis point where they're like about to break, they should take a step back because there's a lot of people doing this work. Mm -hmm. yeah. And <clears throat> if you have some money, just, you know, sit back and watch The Office and send in your dues for an organization that's really doing some grassroots work. <clears throat> if you have the mental capacity to do it, you should definitely get it and get involved. And then, you know, so, you know, phasing out the people who really do need to take a chill pill and like relax for their own mental health. You have to put your health before anything else. And then once you get past that and you, you find yourself in a, in a healthy space where you can engage in this work, all politics are local. And that's absolutely true. If you're going to worry about like, oh, I did a protest and Trump hasn't fallen down in flames yet, you will always be disappointed. But there is, when you do stuff on a local level, there are, you know, it's not like some faceless enemy that we have. We have, there are people with human faces and human families who are doing these things to hurt us and to take our power and to hurt the people we love. We need to find out who they are and strategize around how to make them change their behavior to make them stop hurting us. And that can be anything. And so, you know, there are so many ways, just find a, a group of five or six people and you can start strategizing about mm -hmm. how to make some change. You know, you could think about in your local community, some local granny got evicted and that could be something that you mm -hmm. want to take action about because that local granny getting evicted is connected yeah. to violence and connected to, you mm. know, all sorts of things. And so, you know, start local because you absolutely can affect change locally. And once you see how powerful you are, and you will see it if you act locally, mm -hmm. there's no doubt that you will not have an impact once you start acting. Yeah. Once you see the impact you have, um, you'll kind of be unstoppable, you know, um, of course, like, you know, the FBI and repression <laughs> forces will fight back, but, you know, just, you gotta, you gotta struggle. Yeah, I would say, like, actually, I was gonna ask you, like, what would you say uh, would be the best advice you can give to someone who's looking to organize? I mean, I know you've organized, I know um, your, uh, your husband, um, Byron Sergio Lopez, has been uh, been on the front lines in, in this work in the past and 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 now as an elected official but I, but what would you say to young upcoming folks that want to organize locally what would be the best uh, strategy what would they have to consider as part of the whole process um i would think like you know after trump's election i started um you know because i was already kind of involved but i wasn't as involved as i should have been or at least my, the guilt in me felt like that so I kind of shopped around and, you know, for me, Chicago Democratic Socialists for America felt like the right place. 
Um, so I think it's up to people to find ways they can get involved in doing organizing work because that's what is really what we need at this time. So, you know, organizing around, so like democratic socialists is a great place to do it. Um, working in your workplace to see if you have a union, uh, getting involved in your union. If you don't have a union, reaching out to groups like I think Jobs for Justice or Chicago Democratic so or D Democratic Socialists of America in general to figure out how you could start a union in your workplace and start to empower the people around you. Um, you know, no workplace. If you have a boss, you can have a union. And um, it's really important for people to realize that they need to take democratic control over back through their lives to a place where we can live out, you know, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. in every space in our lives. So you think about your school, your kid's school. Is that a democratic space where parents and teachers and kids like have a voice in how they're spending their day? Um, your workplace, do you have, uh, do you, are you given a, the, the resources to do your job well? Or are you given the opportunity to rise up? Are you being paid a fair wage for the value that you create for your boss? Um, and then, you know, in your family, are you being treated fairly at home? Um, you know, all these things like take control of your life, you know, mm -hmm. and work with people to help you get there. The tools are there. And, it's, and that's the thing, like capitalism puts us under such strain that we don't have time to think about stuff like this, especially like I, like I don't have a, a kids yet, you know, and like these are things that take time, but it comes, there comes a point where, you know, nothing is more important because the stakes become too high. You know, and every mm -hmm. for every person, something radicalizing is different. Like for the te Chicago teachers right now, you know, they're they're fighting for the future of our city. And, you know, what what world these kids who are children right now in 2019, they'll never be children again. This is their childhood. And this is their one opportunity for the teachers fighting for them to get them social work to get them to nurse, you know. Mm -hmm. So for everyone, the struggle is different. But for everyone, the struggle is the same. So we need to. The, the last paragraph of Bernie's speech at that Queens rally over the weekend was like, you know, look at the stranger next to you. You're willing to fight for them as hard as you're going to fight for yourself because solidarity is the most powerful force on earth. Nothing can stop us if we work in solidarity together. And we need to all mm -hmm. step up something. Yeah. Uh, so last year, um, Byron Sixto Lopez uh, was one of a few Democratic Socialist um, can't, uh, city council members in Chicago. Now, I was very curious um, what actually motivated him to run for alderman, but also what was the process like of campaigning for him and what did you learn from that campaign up until his election? Um, he ran for office for the first time in 2015. He ran, um, that was Danny Solis was still alderman back then. Um, and in 2012-2013, there had been the massive school closures, and they had slated two schools in Pilsen for closure, Pilsen Academy and Youngman um, Elementary. And Byron had been a volunteer soccer coach at Pilsen Academy at the time, and he was also a member for Teachers for Social Justice. And um, when they were going to close down the schools, that really radicalized him politically and was like, wow, I need to get engaged. So they organized and they ended up keeping those two schools open that are thriving to this day. Um, and so then in 2015, he, um, or 2014, he just started to run for office against Solis. And it was just really grassroots campaigning. There were some mentors that he had that were very, like, um, very impactful forces on him. Uh, Kit Duffy, who was like an advisor to Harold Washington, was one of his early mentors. I think uh, Karen Lewis of the Chicago Teachers Union mm -hmm. had supported him and uh, knew him well. And so he just, you know, made a go of it. And he ended up getting pretty close. Um, I think he was only 70 or 80 votes short of forcing wow. runoff. And this is, you know, one of the most powerful aldermen in the city. Yeah. Um, and so <clears throat> then in 2018, um, you know, we started dating and he, I remember he was saying that, you know, he wasn't sure he was going to run. And he was like talking to some folks who were running about, you know, um, if they would be like the leader that we need, you know, um, but no one, no one really um, was going to champion what the 25th Ward Independent Political Organization's platform was, and which is very similar to Chicago Democratic Socialist platform. Um, 
so you know we he decided to run and we kind of just um you know had a go of it and so you know what i learned could fill a book um but power will work very hard you know no, power was it power seeds nothing without something i know what you're talking about i'm <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't think of it right now. Or something like that, but yeah. you know, we were—they'll never give us democratic control of our lives because they profit too much from it. So everything we have, we have to take. Mm. We took power back for the people. Yeah, and what was that feeling like when Byron got elected? I and mean, what was uh, your feeling then? And what were your hopes? coming into it and has it changed since uh, he's been in office? Um, you know, I never thought that, you know, I'd be involved in something like this and, or that I had the power to af help affect something like this and how impactful that is for such a huge amount of people. Mm. Um, and um, so now I guess I think about, you know, I think about more like, existential like you know who who are the people who have been in my place before where they were like wow like you know we have you know byron has the ability to like help so many people and you know what's it going to take to solve the systemic problems we have in the city in our state in our country um and really like seeing if we can self-govern ourselves and be better for it, you know, and there's so much toxicity in our politics um, because it's, there are so many people who are aiming to exploit it for them, themselves. And it's hard for voters to discern who's on their side and who's not, who has an, a really slick PR campaign and who really is fighting for them. And, you know, we need to empower ordinary people to you know, really have clarity on who's on their side. And if there is nobody in the race on their side, having the resources and the ability to run one of their own leaders, you know, because we need, we need people from the grassroots at every level of this country, mm -hmm. like AOC, to really just stand up and be like, the emperor has no clothes. Can we solve the problems now that we've had our whole living lives? You know? <clears throat> I was... Uh thinking about this uh, uh, more reflectively, I know like with Chicago, it's been so entrenched in with corruption for decades upon decades. And with Byron and also with other new city council members that uh, have ousted longtime city council members, there's an awful lot of city council members establishment uh, from the established democratic side that have been there for so long. How does he and other folks try to try to find a way to contend uh, with the rest of city council and also with the current Lightfoot administration? Because, because honestly, like with him getting elected, you have constituents that expect him to make those changes, right? And but change doesn't come in immediately. It it takes a lot of other um, it takes a lot of other parts to to keep to to make it move. So I was wondering, have you had a lot of uh, interactions with a lot of constituents who are still hoping that um, Byron and some of the new folks are able to make that change? And have you started seeing that from uh, from your own experience? But but how long, but how do you, how does he work through that whole process to work with this administrate, work, work with city council and also with the administration, uh, especially when you're dealing with decades of, of uh, corruption and uh, mistrust from the public? Um, I think a lot of people, if most people are, have a, you know, are fair and understand that things aren't going to be fixed overnight. Of course, you'll see people screaming like, oh, there's still potholes and you were elected four months ago. And it's like, yep, that, there's a lot of problems and they're not going to be fixed in, you know, five months. Um, 
so but I think most people are fair to that but um you know there's a lot of the job of being alderman is like you know fixing potholes and that type of thing but that it requires you to um be able to get the city departments to work properly and to address the problems in your ward. And sometimes those things can be really politically fraught, you know, just because just because Solis is gone doesn't mean that he was there 23 years. So over 23 years, he was hiring, he was recommending people to be hired in all of these departments. So there might be loyalists there who, you know, want to obstruct or don't care about their jobs or something like that. So you need mm -hmm. to make sure that you can get through that um, effectively and get services for your ward regardless of that. And, um, and then on the legislation side, it's, you know, finding, you know, cause there's lots of things that our city needs and finding, okay, we have 50 things we have to do in terms of like housing and public safety and green space and schools and yada, yada. Um, what's the low hanging fruit and then going around and trying to gather support for that moving forward. <clears throat> yeah. So, uh, I was just thinking about. Uh, there's a moment ago and I just kind of lost my train of thought there, but since up since Byron got elected, has has it affected your approach to activism? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm still like, you know, there's there's like activism, advocacy, and organizing, right? So mm. activism is kind of like a very level one way of being democratically engaged civically engaged um you know when there's a trump comes to town you're gonna be out there demonstrating you show up mm -hmm. to things but just showing showing up is great but somebody was there making sure circling the wagons to make sure people showed up make sure that you know things were happening and then there's advocacy so like the aclu is a good example of an advocacy organization that will go to court with a immigrant and try to advocate for their rights and then there's organizing, which is the level that everyone should strive to be at because you're trying to bring, you know, America has how many, 300 million people? Yes. Most people are in the 99% who are suffering under capitalism, but how many people are actively fighting against capitalism or how many people are actively fighting for their economic interests? Almost very few of the people who should be fighting, you know? Um, so when you organize, you need, you're working to like, engage all your relationships to see like who are the people around you who could be moved from somebody who's just living their lives and not being civically engaged very much or just maybe showing up as an activist but not doing um, work to sort of change anyone else's mind to getting them to be an organizer or, or organizing them and working together so you could be like oh i go to these trump things all the time but you know i know in my local community that Trump has supported like polluting this local river. Mm -hmm. And then you can talk to, you know, you're dropping your kid off at school and there's another parent who's upset about the river. And, you know, you get, you know, you have 300 parents at the school who don't like the river and maybe 10 of them will get together and start a group called, you know, so-and-so parents against the river pollution. And now you've started organizing around that. And you can bring people together who, you know, are, we are not like Democrats and Republicans. We are all people. And no matter what your, um, no matter what your politics are on a national level, locally, 99% of people are going to be against their local river being contaminated by somebody who's profiting from it. So you can organize people around that. And once they have organized and they see an impact of their work, even if they don't win, they'll see, you know, that that they changed. They affected the conversation. They affected the outcome, even if they didn't win. Then they can start to see that by putting in the effort, there is an effect. There is power. And if they can learn to do it better, they might win next time. Yeah. Uh, and also with organizing advocacy work and in protesting, it's, we've talked about the fatigue. Um, we talked about the fatigue effect that it can bring. What do you do for self-care on a personal level, especially with you being so, being so heavily involved in the protest, the community organizing work, uh, working alongside Byron? Um, how do you take care of yourself? How do you self-preserve to move forward, to continue doing this work? Because 
I look at it as like, my gosh, it is so exhausting. It's triggering. It's it's very taxing. Uh, I mean, I remember being in the immigrant organizing several years ago and working with undocumented API folks and just seeing people's stories, uh, watching them over and over again and seeing the deportations continue on with no end in sight. It's very deflating, right? And and you start to lose that hope and you become more fatigued from it. You spend days on end not eating, um, having to go from one place to another. You get, you get an emergency email or a text message from a director or from one of the organizers saying that we have to meet up right now at such and such place. How do you contend, how do you work through a lot of the those crises, uh, th these crises and and finding a way to take care of yourself in that whole process? Well, in general, you know, I've taken some leadership development courses and, you know, especially, you know, people who are doing this like work that like th think about like all the work there is to be done in our communities and how little yes. we get paid if we can even get paid work doing this. And that gives you an example of how little capital serves us, right? Because when there's work, you should be able to do that work and make a, and be able to make ends meet. But if you do the work that we really need, taking care of our grandmas and like making sure children are taken care of and, you know, um, that our communities are safe, all that type of stuff, there's no money for that type of stuff. But there's plenty of money when you want to go work on Wall Street or something. Um, and so there's like, you know, there's all this work to be done and you need to first of all, like find, choose what you're going to do. Cause we're, we're stretched so thin. You can only do so much. So say no to the stuff you can't do. Like some people will say yes to everything and then end up disappointing everyone when they burn out. And so you need to like, we die earlier from all this work. Like organizers yeah. die very early. Very. Um, and so we need to, be like okay with saying you know i'm not doing anything sunday even though this such and such horrible thing's going to happen because i will not be able to go on um so there i've heard the term personal ecology which is like a more holistic way of thinking about like self-care um and then just you know like i'm really lucky that you know byron and i have a great relationship and we can sort of decompress with each other and you know in general and then during the campaign that was like being in a tornado and like you just got to know that okay there's an end date when this will all be over um so if you are in some sort of situation where there's like a tornado around you you need to be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel and know that it's going to be whatever tornado is going on is going to change or be different after that date because it's not sustainable to do that like forever um you know i could only survive the the campaign because i knew that the election was in you know, February, April, and that we were gonna, it, that time, that day would arrive and whatever the outcome was going to be, was going to be. Yeah. So going into the crystal ball, the future of 2020, it's going to be upon us. Election year is coming. What do you feel most hopeful about? Are you feeling more encouraged by the movements that have been happening from the past few years? Um, I'm encouraged by, um, you know, all over the country and all over the world, you're seeing people rise up and sort of um, try to assert themselves democratically. And some of them get crushed by authoritarian regimes and some of them rise up and succeed like a lot of the teachers across the nation where they, they went on strike, even though it was illegal in their state to go on strike, but they ended up winning enormous concessions from Republican dominated legislators, legislatures, because they couldn't win a process democratically because their states are so gerrymandered. So they had mm -hmm. to strike and they did strike and they won and it was awesome. And, you know, I'm hopeful that the world sees that Bernie is awesome. Um, he would change the world to such a tremendous degree that that's the only obstacle I see is that the billionaire class would freak out to such an extent. But there's a, there's a cap to how influential they can be. All they have is money. They don't have people. They, are the, they do not have an army of people fighting for them. That is a fact. All they have are some paid consultants, paid PR experts, and, you know, jobs that they hang over people's heads. But that's, you know, nothing compared to... Even Bernie Sanders has been winning the fundraising because there are more of us. 
like millions of people have given him five, 10 bucks, 200 bucks. And he's, he outraised Joe Biden like three times over. And also looking at the Senate and the House races too, because those are also going to be very important. I mean, we have the Senate, which is still GOP controlled, and it also affects the next Supreme Court justice. Now, it's, it's, it is going to be a very difficult challenge. I mean, right now with the U.S., especially with gerrymandering, with voter oppression, uh, voter oppression in Republican states, what plans do you have coming into 2020 from you as a person? Like, because I know that activism is a big part of, uh, has been a big part of your life. What do you look to do in this next coming year during the, ele- during the election year? Um, I'll probably be working with Chicago Democratic Socialists of America to see like what the campaign leaders there are thinking is what the best strategy is. Because like once we have, like of course there's going to be the Democratic nomination, um, and I'm hoping that goes to Bernie. Um, hopefully, a leftist because if we don't get a leftist, then the establishment's going to lose. Um, I mean they might win because Trump is just so terrible, but it won't be a sustainable victory. And even if we win, we won't win the long term. So it's really important that Bernie gets it. Um, And so ideally, if Bernie gets it, we have tremendous capacity to organize non-voters, independents, and Democrats to come out in full force Mm -hmm. for Bernie. And that will, having Bernie at the top of the ticket wins those down ballot races because it it brings people out to vote for the Democrat. No. the issues to the left yeah. you know it calls people people mm-hmm. will come out to vote for their health care to vote for their education to vote for their student loans mm-hmm. in a way that they don't turn out if they don't feel like a candidate's fighting for them now let's say bernie doesn't get the nomination then what happens from your angle let's say a person like elizabeth warren let's say a person like uh mayor pete what so if how it does elizabeth it, yes. warren i still see the capacity to mobilize like she's still a capitalist which is disappointing but um she Mm. still will fight for things that are um more progressive than any modern american president so that's great um with pete um he would be an abject disaster um i would probably vote for him um but you know, obviously the enthusiasm would be very different. Exactly, uh, that's what exactly. would hurt. The Party, yeah, yeah, I think right now with the Democratic Party, it's it's still very divided. But there's been some cracks, especially with the squad. Um, we are seeing like more uh, folks in certain parts, certain factions of the Democratic Party actually speaking out. Uh, so. So I I look at 2020. It's going to be such. I mean, I don't even I don't even know how to describe what 2020 is going to look like. I look at 2018 as okay. There's possibilities now. You, you're seeing women of color uh, entering. Women of color, queer, trans folks entering um, in offices, both locally, state, and federal. And but we're looking at 2020, and we're like, boy, I don't. I'm scared. I'm actually quite frightened. I think a lot of us are genuinely frightened that Trump could very still get elected, even though there's an impeachment inquiry going on. So, yeah, I, I'm glad for the work that you've been doing. Uh, I'm glad for the work that you and Byron uh, have been doing for the ward. And, and also, I, I think it's so important to have this discussion about where we are at in this time of pl- time and place, but also uh, really thinking about how do we engage folks to be more active civically and how much power that we do have to affect change, especially um, when you when you start to mobilize folks. And you've shown in that interview that this is that it can be done. That that there is ways to affect change on a local level. I think most people forget that because it's so easy to think of it on a national level and wait for Trump to again, like uh, trip over once again. And even though it's very important to protest against them, but we have folks on a, on a local level that clearly impact these communities. So 
with that with that said, do you see yourself running for office? Um, I uh, don't at this time. Yeah, I just it's a real like it have to be like some sort of crazy scenario in which I really was like the best qualified or something and or I felt that I was and you know I live in a community that's primarily like you know Latinx and I don't speak Spanish and you know we have an awesome alderman so I'm chill right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah I can imagine uh, you know seeing what that must be like and it's like oh goodness just to see the daily grind but I could totally see you uh taking on political office uh, down the road, but who knows? Who knows what the future holds? So is there any plugs, like any way um, we can find out more about Alderman uh, Byron Cito Lopez? And also, do you have any other works that you're doing that you're willing, that you that you would like to promote and share? And, and do you still work with Preach? Um, yeah, I still do stuff with Preach. I don't think we have any like real flagship shows coming up for the rest of the year that I know of. Um, you know, we're getting into Thanksgiving holidays and all that. Um, but in terms of like activism stuff, there's so much going on. Um, folks who are in Chicago should go to chicagodsa.org forward slash events to see like stuff they should attend in the upcoming days to get involved, like start coming to things and doing stuff. Um, and if they're in a different city, they should check out their local DSA chapter there. Um, if they don't feel like that's a good, you know, if they're, especially, you know, DSA is relatively white. And if you're a person of color who hasn't had a lot of experience, you know, or a lot of favorable experiences dealing with white people, even on the left, um, you know, check out a grassroots organization led by people of color in your community and get involved there. Because, um, you know, there's a lot of socialists who are not in DSA because they're socialists of color and they've been doing this shit for way longer than DSA yeah. blew up in 2016. So, um, you know, there's, there's less to do and um, people just like make a commitment to do the work for, from now until 2020, like see, we see the expiration date too, you know, put, put what you can into it for now. Um, because right now is the time that, you know, we have concentration camps on the border. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think like, what would you have done in 1938 in Hitler's Germany? Um, we aren't being rep repressed yet by the state to the level that people were, you know, we still have freedom of speech. We still have freedom of assembly. Use it. Yeah. Absolutely. And I also want to say thank you so much, Laureen, for your time and for, you know, sharing your experiences, your passion. I am a huge fan of you online. I've, I I just love the conviction that you have and, and the level of education awareness that you have given to so many folks, especially in teaching folks how to organize and learning how to advocate uh, for their needs and uh, for their community. So it's, it's very important to have this discussion and to hear that experience from you. And I hope that uh, come 2020, we're going to have more folks, especially in, uh, in all walks of life, be active and take, um, take a really important look at this moment and do something with this. So I'm, I'm, I'm feeling more hopeful about 2020, although I'm very guarded at the same time. And I'm pretty sure a lot of us you're in this country are like, you're like that you're facilitating these conversations. I mean, what I didn't mention this whole time was like, they win by dehumanizing their yeah. enemies, you know, and you have created so many spaces in which people who are most dehumanized can become so dynamic in front of people that need to hear it. And, Absolutely. you know, ma making space for that is so, you don't have to politically knock doors. You can be out there organizing, you know, open mics and yes. being an artist. There are so many ways that folks can make a difference in a way that resonates with them. If you're a parent, like, you know, get together with parents, just relationships are what, radicalized people and love loving someone that has been hurt by the system and fighting wanting to fight for them because you see their destiny in, in lockstep with yours mm. and so you know you're doing it i'm doing it like so many people that we've never met in our lives are fighting so hard for us right now and you know like stephen miller will lose trump will lose we will win 
we hopefully will live to see the win. <laughs> yes, I sure as heck hope so. And we'll see what happens. So one way when we tell these, when we're in our 80s and we're looking at these little young kids who are asking about that era, what did we do to end this, right? So we shut shit down. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So thank you so much, Lorraine, for your time. And best of luck to you and Byron. And I cannot wait to see what awesome things you're going to be doing. I'll be I'll keeping an eye on both of you. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care, Lorraine. Good night. Bye. Night. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunby Chronicles on Facebook, or you can follow me on Instagram at bunby underscore chronicles. Thank you again, and looking forward to sharing more with you. <laughs>